Welcome to TA1, everything you want to know about adventure racing and then some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson. Getting this out just a little bit late, but unless you uh, are up at midnight on Saturday, you don't know that anyway. So, um, had a couple of long days with the chili dogs shooting pictures at the uh, Black Hills 100 trail race. Hot, 100 degrees. Uh, congrats to everybody that. Um, made it and yeah some of those that didn't had to drop out is uh come back and fight again another day so so um one of my favorite races to shoot only because i can shoot till like one o'clock in the morning as they go past the trail past our house um i didn't do it because i didn't want to go grab a camera but i literally could have taken pictures of the runners at night while i would be laying in my bed looking out the window at them but Thing next year that will have to be done. So, um, what else is going on? The Teton Ogre race is this weekend. Maybe I'll put a link to the results there if you can. Um, Cowboy Tough's coming up. Some stuff was uh, released this week on the course. Should be interesting. The big thing is there's no no uh, end of day this year. No dark zones. Uh, more straight through adventure racing getting ready for worlds next year so that's going to be exciting and a lot of paddling so if you're into paddling go for it and actually there's still a couple of teams looking looking for a member um go to an adventure race teammate finder on facebook if you're really interested in a last minute um race in wyoming so that should be it um this one is pretty cool um, you know how I am. I don't say anything, but Steve, Steve Gurney, from New Zealand, just a very interesting person um, and a hell of an athlete. So let's uh, listen to it. Got some, got some opinions. Imagine that. Oh, there's a couple of bad words in this one. Not much, but um, you know, if you got that uh, kid in the car listening. Well, first you should have them watching a DVD, but uh, be warned, there's a couple, but nothing major. So, Thanks for listening. Go fast, take chances, and um, hey, motorcycle racing next weekend. Thanks. Bye. I'm a conference speaker, um, and I've got a conference tomorrow with a very disorganized bunch from Australia who flying over to New Zealand and um, they want me to organize everything for peanuts so you know they'll get monkeys <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. Uh, yeah so I've got to organize a sports quiz and um, some stuff like that so yeah so I'll just take a quick break out to um, have a chat with you that'd be great oh, yeah. good I'm uh, I'm excited really excited about this and I don't know why because I I talked to some interesting people, but I think you're going to be right there at the top of my interesting list. Oh, stop it. You, you, <laughs> you say that to yeah. everyone, Randy. <laughs> um, you know, the real truth is, is let's see, I've done like 110 or 12 of these. And I would say 105 of them have been really, really cool. You know, there's no. been three or four that, that, it was hard to get people to talk about themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, it, if it was me, I'm just like, "Hey, Steve, 
start talking and we'll listen. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. So, um, okay, it, but I did. I do know where I want to start. Yeah. Which, which is? Can we just? Uh, can we just before we start? Would you mind? Yeah. Um, let's define how long we've got. I've got you know just a bit of planning and. And if, you know, emails and phones will come in in the meantime, so I just want to sort of be able to reply to them and say, we'll try me after whatever time. Let's say like 45 minutes or so. Oh, yeah, maybe a bit less if we can. Okay. Yep. Yeah, you know, if you got a, I mean, yeah, you know what? You're like a real person, so. Um. <laughs> I'm not really. I'm just fake. I'm a cardboard cutout. Hey, yeah. Okay, good for it. Let, let's go then. Yeah, sweet. We'll go. If, if you got to go, just say, I got to go, and I'll ask you a, a one last question, and we'll call it. Yeah. So I'm yeah. I'm easy. Um, which brought which is more nor brought you more notoriety? Uh, the first nudist on New Zealand breakfast TV or uh, <laughs> winning coast to coast nine times? <laughs> well, I don't know. I haven't been in the, uh, the 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 kitchens and lounge rooms of people who choked on the cornflake. Um, <laughs> As they saw me as uh, a New Zealand's first nudist, but I'll just have you just briefly tell you how it happened. Um, I want to know. Yes, the coast to coast race is a famous New Zealand race, for, largely for individuals. Although you can do it as as a, a relay style team, and actually now as a as a as a tandem team. But in those early days, Robin Judkins, the eccentric organizer of the race of the coast to coast. Uh, every Wednesday morning, uh, the week before the race, he'd get a live spot. It was actually live. They, you know, it wasn't recorded mm-hmm. on TV. A uh, breakfast from up on top of the hills, near the finish line of the coast to coast, and they do the weather forecast and have a bit of a chat about the race favourites. But for those of you who know Robin, he's eccentric. He really is a, a nutcase, but um, a highly intelligent also. And they often go hand in hand those two. Yes. But, um, and he very much likes to hijack the conversation and take it off on some weird tangent um, whilst doing these interviews. And it was a reputation he had, and the TV enjoyed it. Um, however, this year he was feeling a wee bit, um, I don't know, frisky or something. And he said, right, Steve, I mean, because we usually did it together. And he said, Steve, why don't we go dressed as a policeman and a pink fairy? Who's going to do which? And we flipped the coin. And so I ended up going as the policeman, and uh, he went as a pink fairy. Uh, don't ask me what the connection is, but I don't know it to this day. <laughs> and um, so I thought, right, I'll hijack Juddy at his own game. And um, I just had the policeman trench coat with a helmet and a, and a fake tie and shirt tucked under the, and made out of paper actually, under the <laughs> collar. And at, halfway through the conversation, when, when Judkins was going off some mad tangent, I just stripped off and ran away. So um, uh, the TV didn't catch a, a, a shot of, of, of you know, the important bits I own, but um, they did catch a bare butt running away. So anyway, so that was, um, that. from then on, we weren't allowed to do those interviews. So, so, but what a way to exit, my God. And um, anyway, you had to be there really, but it was it was very very funny and um, did get a bit of notoriety. But I think to answer your question, Coast to Coast by far has been where I sort of cut my teeth and where I gained the, my brand, if you like, you know, brand, my, yes. as a professional athlete. Um, to the New Zealand public, that is that is the race. It's like, you know, the Hawaii Ironman in New Zealand is the coast-to-coast race. It's the, mm-hmm. the bucket list. You've got to do it before you die sort of thing for most people. And um been going now for 33 years, a very famous race here. And we've had many of uh, many USA athletes come over here and, and race it. 
and we still expect that you know that there was, some will come. So um, I had a professional career of ten years. Uh, sorry, twenty years, and um, uh, and you know, whilst coast to coast was the race I was known for in New Zealand, you know, the other half of my career was doing adventure racing, and uh, you know. It's not, perhaps not as famous in New Zealand as it as it has been in the USA with the Primal Quest Eco Challenge, those you know, the Red Gulois, those sorts of races. So there you are. There's a bit of a summary. Yeah. So let's um, let's talk about it. I, I, you know, most people don't do a race nine times, let alone win it, um, <laughs> and and seven times in a row. That's probably pretty amazing. How did you, how how How's that for a question? How? <laughs> oh, it's actually a really good question, Randy. You've done your homework. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I had I had about 20 attempts, earnest attempts at winning the race. So nine out of 20 isn't that good, really, when you look at it that way. But um, it's been an interesting journey and one that taught me good things, and I like to share what it taught me. First of all, um, that failure is not failure. It's just feedback on how not to do it or how to tw- tweak your training. And so it took me five attempts before I won the race. And, you know, my first attempt was um, I believed I was going to win it. I had a goal to win it, um, but I came 22nd, you know, and that was a, you know, a bit of a dismal failure in my, in my eyes. It was definitely not achieving my goal. Some people would say even just finishing the race is, is, is achieving your goal, but my goal was specifically to win it. So I redoubled my efforts, doubled my training, and, um, oh, you know, I wasn't put off. I was really enthusiastic about this race. It's a fun race. It's a good adventure. And so I um, doubled my training, and the next year, um, once again, my goal was to win it. Failed again, came third. But I was excited because third's yeah. better than 22nd, you know. So I doubled mm-hmm. my training again. Um, and once again, my goal the next year was to win it. Failed again, I came second. But my God, that was exciting. Oh, I'm only one place off winning. So I doubled my training again. Once again, you know how the story goes. Um, goal was to win it. Failed again. I came second again. And it's about then someone said to me, look, Steve, the, the, the definition of, of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. Or put another way, uh, if you want different results, you've got to do something different in the training. So up till then, uh, up till the second to last time, uh, doubling my training had worked, but that last time it, it hadn't worked and it was, I'd, I'd overstepped the mark into overtraining and um, was very stale and um, so I, it was then I got into the study of mental excellence through NLP, you know, neuro linguistic programming, and just understanding what was I doing in my brain to get mm. the results I get, whether it's failure or success, and what, what and how can we learn off other people around the world who've succeeded and not succeeded. And so uh, I got into training smarter and instead of harder, and then I won it. So that's my first lesson: was you know, failure is not failure. And there's a um, another lovely quote that says. Sometimes I win, sometimes I learn, but I never fail. And um, I think it's really good to know that all results are useful. It's just the way you, you look at it, the way you, you, you interpret your results. So that's the first learning I thought was really important. Um, mm-hmm. Then just to put a bit of preface on or explain a bit about how I got to win seven in a row, halfway through my 20-year career as a professional athlete, I, I was doing a race, the Raid Gulois in Borneo, and even though our team won it, um, I came down very ill. Uh, the last stage of that race was through the, the uh, Mulu Caves, which is a very large, probably the world's largest cave system. And, uh, of course, there are 
uh, thousands, perhaps millions of bats hanging around in those caves. And um, unbeknownst to us, those bats had a disease called leptospirosis, which you can catch. It's a kind of a blood poisoning type thing. And um, we were all grazed and cut up, uh, you know, as the last stage of, of a, of a week-long race and yeah. adventure race. And um, <clears throat> uh, I had grazes on my legs and I didn't wear long pants and ended up getting bat shit in those um, cuts and got quite ill. Um, in fact, very ill. <laughs> got rushed to hospital um, a few days afterwards and, you know, I had a fever and everything. Even though we were in an equator- equatorial, you know, hot country, I still had fevers and had to, you know, stay warm in a hot bath. So things were getting quite desperate. Sore joints. Cut a long story short, ended up on three life support machines in an intensive care uh, unit in a hospital, unconscious, in a coma. And um, they thought I was going to die, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> takes more than that to kill me. And um, so, yeah, I, w- what learning I got from that was, I, you know, this, the nephrologist, the, the, this medical specialist said to me, look, your kidneys have failed. Um, probably should give up your adventure racing and anything like that is pretty hard with all that dehydration risk. Your kidneys might fail again. So that, I'd had a glimpse then as I was lying in, in my you know, deathbed, near deathbed in hospital of, having had my passion taken away from me and um someone had in, in the hundreds of get well cards i'd had sent from over new zealand someone had sent a, um, a little piece of paper that was a desiderata from a 92 year old lady who was on her hospital bed you know she was in her dying days and uh, and um she said well even though i'm you know i've got no time left so i just w- want to dictate a few notes and so these end up being published on on the internet as many desideratas are and this one was essentially, she said, look, I've had a good innings, you know, I'm 92 years old, I'm about to die, but if I lived my life again, I would do it differently. And she listed off all the things she wished she'd do differently. And I, I saw that as, uh, um, I thought that was a tragedy. You know, she died without, she died with regrets. And so I saw that near death that I had, you know, um, and the glimpse of having my sport taken away from me, what I love doing, as as kind of a reminder to make sure you do the stuff that are, that's on your bucket list. Take off those things that are really really important, um, and the things that you know you you don't want to die with the regrets. So that really inspired me to. Um, I took two years to get well again and really look after my diet and you know no drinking alcohol and good healthy food. And I so I thought well I'm going to give sport a nudge again even though they don't want me to. And so I was far more passionate, far more inspired, and that's when I won seven in a row. And um, I think that's a really good message for anyone, actually, not just athletes, is that you don't want to finish at the end of your career or the phase of life you're in with any regrets. And you just want to put your heart and soul into what you love doing and tick off those things right on the top of your bucket list. And so, um, yeah, those are the two things that came out of that question you just gave me about Coast to Coast winning the <laughs> in a row or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, it, it, it does explain a lot why you'd where that drive came from um but where did where did the where did the thought that you were going to win the first time come from Ooh, it's <laughs> a good question i've written um i've written, written three books now two of them are autobiographical and i answer that question you know where did my drive come from mm. i answer that question and it took a whole book to do it so i'm going to try okay rise it in a few minutes here um, so Randy, I guess, I mean, in New Zealand here, we have a, a country where it's easy to get into the back country. You know, it's easy to get into the mountains, the rivers, the lakes, the beaches, and it's easy to do adventure. And 
I mean, the parts of the USA are like that also, with uh, you know, especially yeah. Colorado and you know your, your West Coast. East, well, I don't know, just so many places. But um, but in New Zealand, it's kind of a way of life. We kind of, as kids, were brought up that way. So I had a love of the outdoors, felt at ease with it, and um, I, I biked to school and I you know, did a lot of running and tramping, what we call uh, tramping, hiking, trekking. Um, and I had a wee taste of kayaking. And I thought, oh man, that coast to coast race looks like it's built just for me. And then, you know, so I did it the coast to coast for a few years, uh, and then along came the very first adventure race, uh, the Raid Gulawas was held here in New Zealand in, uh, in 1989. And um, so as a young boy, I'd already had an interest in, in the mountains, the outdoors. I loved, loved trekking with a pack on over the weekend sort of thing. So that's where it came from. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, the love came from but. The drive you ask about is a very good question. The drive, I believe, after retrospectively examining my navel, <laughs> that, um, you know, the, when I was lying in that Borneo hospital, nearly dead, when, when I'd recovered and I was still, you know, sick, I, I, I got some very severe depression uh, for a couple of years, in fact. I didn't take any of the drugs. That's where I started inquiring what was going on in my mind. And I, I really, I read a lot, read widely, widely about you know, spirituality, um, emotions, you know, mental aspects, sporting excellence, books like that. And um, did a few courses and I discovered something about what I believe is very common to sports people, to athletes, especially the driven athletes who are driven to win. And... <laughs> um, as I say, I wrote a whole book on this. I'm trying to summarise. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I discovered I was the well, I was the firstborn of four children, and yeah, generally speaking, the firstborn is quite a competitive sibling because they have all this attention from their parents and their grandparents and their aunties and uncles, family, and then suddenly, you know, at some stage in their young life in the first few years, there's another invader in the nest who takes away the attention and love that they were getting from their parents. And it has, they have to share it. And so they learn, the firstborn generally, I'm generalizing, it tends to learn hmm. if I'm competitive I, and I behave really well or you know, um, achieve greater heights than my sibling, then I'll get more attention. So that's where the first inkling of competitiveness generally comes from. And you'll find a lot of top athletes are firstborn and a lot of lawyers, airline pilots, those sorts of people are um, competitive firstborns. So that's one. Hmm. Um, number two, as a... As a kid, um, I, I, well, I've, I've, I'm generalizing again, but I've delved very deeply into hum, the human psyche, and mm -hmm. I believe that most people have some sort of confidence issue, you know, and it's just how it is as social beings. We want to feel part, or we want to feel valued and appreciated, and uh, we, we have this innate uh, belief at some level, somehow, it might be deep and unconscious, but some of us are driven to find out what it is, that we're not lovable or we're not good enough or we need to prove that we're good enough. And, you know, we find that, you know, how it's the fear of, for example, public speaking, that's one extreme. Getting up on a stage, most people fear that because they want to feel, well, they feel judged and they want to feel accepted. And so sometimes you have to prove yourself and athletes do that by winning races um, to prove that you are good enough. And when I saw my name in the headlines of the newspaper as being a winner, or on the TV or whatever, then I felt, phew, I've earned it and I've proved that I'm good enough. I, I don't have to go about proving that anymore. But, but the irony is, <laughs> is never satisfied. And that's yeah. just how it is being human, you know. We, 
we feel like sometime in the future we're going to be good enough once I've done this or won this or got my million bucks or whatever, then I'll be happy. But as Eckhart Tolle, you know, the famous philosopher and author, says, you know, we spend too much time living in the future and not accepting the present as as what really is truthfully um, the best time is to, is to be present. And um, and, so, and and as humans, we always want to improve ourselves and, and set goals and achieve goals. Um, so that we feel better about ourselves, and um, I, we won't ever escape that. It's all part of being human. It's just about accepting it. As it gives you peace, and you know that's why I was driven. I think it was I had this deep down belief that it wasn't good enough, and I had to prove it. Uh, that that makes sense. <clears throat> I think a lot of people. I think you're right. Won't admit that, but you know, and why why not adventure race? Because you're not going to get rich or <laughs> anything. But but. There's a certain amount of uh, pleasure in in people knowing your name, even if it's in your own little community. Absolutely, of adventure racing. Absolutely, and yeah, and coupled with that, adventure race is a fantastic marriage of other things as well. It's, it's mm-hmm. the ability to to prove yourself, but it's also giving great social connection, which with the team. And and there's nothing like the camaraderie you find amongst teams, you know, inter teams. Um, when you're out in the bush, out in the mountains, and you need a hand, you know, you got lost, or yeah. you you need um, some first aid or some food because you know you're in trouble. And that, and the knowledge that we're out, we're out there, even though we're competing, we're out looking for each other, out looking for each other's back, you know, looking out for each other's backs and safety because that's what we love about our sport is the 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 the, the, the risk and the adventure part of it. And so it's a double marriage. You know, it's a marriage of of many things that this great satisfaction in being out in the wild. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, I got a simple question and a little bit harder one, okay? Sure. Okay, what, and we're going back, just one more, this one is about coast to coast. What was the easiest win and what was the hardest win? Right, coast to coast. Um, yeah. Oh, the easiest win. Um, I mean, and, and, and we're using easy in a relative term. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. I'll, I'll interpret it how I like, mate. Yeah. <laughs> the okay. easiest one for me was um, near the end of my career, um, I'd got a bit stale. I got a bit um, cocked, if you like, um, and I wasn't really looking forward to a season of hard training. And I said early on, and um, just as spring had come around, I said to the guys, you know, coast to coast is uh, four or five months away. I just, I don't think I've got it in me this year to train passionately for it. So, um, yeah, how about, oh, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and the organizer said to me, oh, Steve, you got to do it. And I said, no, sorry, mate. I just, my heart's not in it. I, you know, I'm going to do it properly or not at all. And he said, oh, well, Steve, look, just tell you what, why don't you go on the film crew? We'll put some cameras on you. You start the race with little handheld cameras and GoPros and things. And um, there weren't GoPros in those days, but the yeah. equivalent of it. And um, and um, you can film the guys. Just just do some training in the summer and, and hang on to them as long as you can, and then um, we'll hand over to the the, the road based and helicopter based crews to film. And um, so I said, oh, this sounds a good idea. So I had a lot of fun training that summer, and um, I thought oh, I'm going to hang on as long as I can with the leaders. But you know, I'll just do some fun training, a bit more adventure based. You know, none of these intervals and hill reps and stuff. So anyway, um. Started off on the race, and I had the cameras and everything on my bike and helmet and handlebars, and I was interviewing people. And then in the mountain run, I had a little handheld. I was running with them. I interviewed them as we were running when I could, and um, sort of leapfrogging around. And then halfway through the race, we finished the mountain run. We were about to start the kayak, and I realized, shit, I've never been 
this far up the field. You know, the, the lead runners usually get a bit of a head start on me and I catch them up on the kayak. But here I was, was still with the lead runners. So I said to the film crew, that's the bloody cameras. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you actually, Randy, that, um, the organizer for, um, health and safety and, and, um, regulations, he made me in, oh, I had to wear a race bib. I was officially an entered athlete. Okay. And yeah. so, um, with a number and everything. So, um, and so I said, halfway through, I said to the guys, look, ditch the cameras, take the weight off my car, I'm going to race the damn thing. And, <laughs> and I won the race. Now, the learning was, you see, I'd got stale and wasn't initially, mm-hmm. in the months out, I wasn't really in a mental space to do it. So the trick is to train having fun and to maintain your win- over winter and off- in the off-season, make sure you don't burn out there. And you want to save yeah. yourself for the last few weeks of training to, to burn out, I mean, you know, to really push yourself mentally. Yeah. So the trick is to make sure you're always in touch with what you're most passionate about and you'll find it easy. And, um, yeah, it was a good learning. Cool. Um, well, all right. Now this brings me to the second part of the question, which this probably varied, but which did you like better, the solo like a coast-to-coast or adventure racing with the team? Yeah, I must be honest, adventure racing is probably slightly more fun. I mean, they're both obviously fun for lots of different reasons. For different, Yeah. Um, there's the real sense of personal achievement with the coast to coast in those sorts of triathlons, but mm-hmm. uh, adventure racing is a whole new dimension that I think you appreciate the older you get, and it's about social connection. And you know, I was a young whippersnapper then, and looking back, I have a lot of regrets that I didn't work better as a teammate. Uh, I didn't work more in my communication, and I really, really miss adventure racing now. I've, you know, I've got a bung ankle. I've torn the cartilage, so I, I can't really keep up with the teams, but um, and do the amount of running I need to do. But yeah. um, I, I, I think you know, adventure racing has that aspect that is so deeply embedded in us about getting on with people, about making connections, about uh, feeling that sense of being worthwhile, being appreciated, uh, being able to contribute to the bigger part. You know, something that is bigger than yourself. I mm. think that's. Um, Oh, and of course, there's the, the travel. I, I mean, I really, really love the travel. We go to so many out of the way places. The, the, you know, the Yukon, where it's just so many, so many unexplored places. Um, there's, you know, backcountry China. You know, just the fantastic corners of the world you don't get to see as a normal tourist. And I, yeah, I must be honest. I think adventure racing sort of slightly edges ahead of of coast to coast as my favourite race. Yeah. Yay, adventure racing. Yeah. So, okay. Um, we're going to get through this fast. You you talk fast and well. So <laughs> I'm, we're, going, we're going through all the questions, so we'll be good. You can get on with your life. Mm. Um, do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> sleep with who? <laughs> well, okay. I sleep with women. Uh, yeah, so, um, do I sleep well, with women? The sleep deprivation is my absolute least favorite part of adventure racing. I, I've come to loathe it. Um, it's lovely to do the first few years. You know, it's great to experience this whole new dimension of sleep monster and hallucinations and um, and the challenge of staying awake. Um, but, oh, my God, I do wonder if it's very healthy for your mental state as you get older. You know, it's the same symptoms as dementia. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. so I think it's important to just... Be a bit careful with sleep deprivation. It's, I don't think upsetting your circadian clock is, you know, there's a bit of research out in New Zealand, actually, uh, some PhD studies on, um, uh, what's it called, sleep in a 24-hour society. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from that study about the harmful effects of, of um, upsetting your circadian clock. And 
I don't think it's bad to do it occasionally. You know, like parenthood is a, a lot of parenthood is about um, you know sleepless nights with your child. Not that I have any children yet, but uh, uh, I think you know we we are able to deal with some of it. But it's it's shown that if you persistently deprive yourself of sleep or or, or shift um, you know um, when you're a, um, a shift worker, um, uh, they say constantly changing the shifts you're on uh, can. Um, decrease your lifespan you know by several years so i think we've just got to be a bit careful about that not to mention it's not just lifespan it's also having your mental faculties about you so um i i just try to get as much sleep as i can to make up for it when when you've been been without sleep you want to get back on track again yeah so get a good night's sleep and then go crazy with all the stuff you do so (laughs) yeah um, story um Ian Edmund, um, some of your listeners will know Ian. He's an adventure racer, also a Kiwi. Mm-hmm. Um, he was—he's a very inspirational man. Um, doing a race with his team once, um, they were nearing the end of the race, several days racing without with, with minimal sleep, and they were just getting so monstered that um, they were making navigation errors and going just just going too slow. They were they were wasting so much time. They said, right, even though we've got a few hours to go, we we got to stop for some sleep." But they all knew that they wouldn't wake up. They were so exhausted that no, no no number of alarms or coldness or anything would wake them up for several hours, and they couldn't afford several hours. They just needed half an hour sleep, 20 minutes. And so Ian volunteered to stay awake while they slept, and he'd wake them up in 20 minutes' time. And Ian knew that at any, you know, any lapse in concentration, he'd fall asleep himself. So he sharpened a stick, set up, set up, set up against a rock face, so he could only slump forward if he fell asleep onto the sharp stick. So, <laughs> Um, that's my favorite AR story ever now (laughs) oh dear anyway so sleep deprivation is um, something to be experienced but not practiced lots I don't believe yeah so okay um, we're we're good Uh, got another book in you I've just written um, my third book The Beginner's Guide to Adventure Sport and it's uh, Adventure Sport in New Zealand specifically. And so it's designed for beginners, obviously, but specifically teenagers. Uh, um, we we have. Um, I'm alarmed, Randy, about where is the future of our sport going? And I can yeah I can see this in New Zealand, and I'm I can see it in the USA. Uh, I think the USA is a wee bit ahead of us on this one, actually. And in terms of bubble wrapping, in terms of cotton wool nanny state. Over protectionism, and um, I just want to spend a couple of minutes explaining. Yeah. Um, yep. That, and um, more to the point, uh, I want to alert our listeners to take action on this because we need to stand up against it. Otherwise, we're going to see the demise of our sport. We're going to see. Um, we're already seeing it actually, and I, I want to put a halt to it and spin it back the other way if we can. So, I'll give you an example. In New Zealand, here a few years ago, we had. It was actually a bike race, a cycle race, um, over some hills, 101 kilometers, what's that, um, 70, 80, 80 miles or something like that, yeah. um, hilly course. And on a downhill, one of the competitors crossed the center line on a blind corner, had a head-on collision with a car and died. The race organizer was taken to court by the police and found guilty, given a criminal conviction of, uh, they call it New Zealand criminal nuisance. So they've got a, a criminal record against their name. Traveling, that sort of stuff is a major problem. Now, I think that's so wrong. The organizer should be given a medal for putting on a race to allow us to challenge ourselves. Instead, the, the, the state and the police, the law system here, 
uh, found the organizer at fault when um, I'll just tell you what happened since then. Since that time it was about 12 years ago, we've seen a domino effect of many of our small races in New Zealand stop because the organizers are petrified of being found liable for any injuries or death to any competitors in their races. And not many people can afford, if, if, uh, afford the astronomical insurance against that. Yeah. But what the point, the point I want to raise here is that um, we sign a liability waiver. I'm sure it's the same in the US. I've done it. You know, I've raced many races yeah. in the US. We sign a liability waiver that says, I hereby take personal responsibility for my own actions and do not hold the organizers liable. Um, and so what happened that that liability waiver didn't stand up? More to the point, let's understand what's the intention of it. The intention is that we athletes, we all know this, we love the, 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 the idea that you might die in these races. And that's, you know, I live in Queenstown here where we've got bungee jumping and all these, it's, you know, soft adventure, but it's, an, it's the perceived knowledge that you can jump off a bridge with nothing but a rubber band tied <laughs> to your ankles and you might die, you know, it's very close yeah. to that feeling of death. And that's why we fucking love it. Oh, pardon my language. That's why we love it. We, yeah. we thrive on the chance that you might die. We thrive on the, the risk factor, or whether it's perceived or real. And that's why we look back at the end of one of these adventure races and we say, oh, wow, man, you know, we could have died in that race. In fact, there have been a couple of deaths in adventure races. Man, mm -hmm. this is scary, but that's why we love it because there's that glowing feeling of satisfaction that we've... First of all, knowing that we need to train for these things, we need to gather skills before we even enter these races and before we even train for these things. Secondly, during the race itself, there's risk, and we were able to open our eyes, keep our eyes open to it, and manage the risk. And we survived. We might have some injuries. We might be cut up and sore. Um, some of us may have ended up in hospital, but we survived. And that's what gives us that growth, that personal growth. It's embedded deeply in, in our DNA. And I think... The governments around the world are stepping in and saying, hey, no, 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 we know better than you guys. We sit in our little ivory towers in, in our bloody head office, <laughs> but we know yeah. better than you. You know, you guys are professionals at your sport, but no, we know better. And, and they've put all these rules and regulations around it. And so let me jump to another extreme of the scenario. So many of our mm -hmm. races in New Zealand now, the ones that survive are sanitized. You know, they are soft because... Their organisers, fearing for their lives and their, their wallets, yeah. um, have gone through the course um, and they've taped off all the dangerous bits. You know, all the cliff bases have got, uh, the cliffs that you might run off have got barriers in front of them. They've got tape around the hazardous sharp rocks and they're marking out every inch of the course so you can't possibly go wrong and hurt yourself. In other words, they're cotton wool and bubble, yeah. bubble wrap because they have to because of their compliance for, for health and safety regulations. And so we're breeding an athlete now who thinks, oh, no, I don't have to think about safety and risk management. I can just enter the race and blindly throw myself at it and I'll be right. And the trouble with that is we need to train for these races. We need to go in the real world. And those athletes who are a bit naive are going to run over the first cliff they come across because they didn't recognize it because it's not taped off. And so we're, you know, I'm painting an extreme situation here, but yeah. this is what's happening in our sport. We're breeding athletes who can't think for themselves, and it's also happening in society, you know, in schools and workplaces, that sort of stuff. And um, we're in, <coughs> headed for a dangerous place where we don't let natural selection take its place, its rightful place. We need people to hurt themselves. We need the occasional death, and those deaths, I know they're tragic, and I wouldn't want it on myself or my family, but 
the, all my friends. But <coughs> we'd, if, if there's someone with genes stupid enough to not look out for the hazards, then we don't want those genes continuing in the human race. That's evolution. That's natural selection. That's how it's, <coughs> yeah. that's how it's designed to work. So I, I think um, we need... Now, how can we convert that into something we can each do for ourselves? Well, we need to voice our concern. We need to raise our children. We need to... Uh, raise you know the, this in our friends and our actions and our workplaces and our sport. We need to encourage people to think for themselves. We can educate them by just saying, "Hey, have you thought about this? You know, look out for this." And when you're reading a map, you can say, "Oh, what do those lines mean? What well, means there's a cliff there?" You know, and just uh, educate people. Um, and um, and we can only do that really. I mean, it, it's too hard to change it at a governmental level. So let's just work at our own circle of influence with the people we have influence on in our workplaces, our families and our sporting clubs and that sort of thing that's where yeah. the action will be powerful how about everybody goes adventure racing doesn't die and they come back and show everybody <laughs> yeah, exactly oh, does that work um, well yeah. yeah see part of the issue is when when an organiser wants to put on a race yeah. they have huge compliance costs you know in terms of your yeah. you know, safety plan uh, getting officials in the right place, covering their asses basically. So, yeah. what I, one possible solution which I've floated amongst my mates is to do a flash mob. You know, a, a random email that goes out to people we can't find the source of it, but it says, "Hey, how about we turn up at this place and we're going to all go? Uh, uh, you know, from ten o'clock we're going to start here and then we're going to finish over here." When, and, you know, um, uh, you yeah. might need to bring your bike and your kayak and stuff like that. You know, make a list of things you might want to bring. <laughs> And yeah. by the way, it's all going to cost you know hundred bucks. We'll put it in a bucket, and whoever gets there first can score it. You know, and so it's a it's a random um, uh, what's the word for it? You can't trace it um, email that or you know so yeah. it's responsible except ourselves. Yeah, not a bad idea. Mm. I know, you know, and I know a few places in the U.S. where they will do um, training days in quotation marks. Yes, yes, perfect. Yes. Yeah. Because you don't you don't need any permits or anything for that. So yes, let's do that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's have uh, a Steve Gurney training <laughs> training weekend. I'll be there. <laughs> hey, um, yeah. it's not just about sport though. It starts even younger. You know, it starts as kids. Yeah. You know, I fell out of a lot of trees as a kid. I hurt myself, and I I, I thank. From the bottom of my heart, I thank my parents for standing back and watching as I hurt myself. They could have stepped in and been helicopter parents, but they weren't. And we need to have parents who are not helicopter parents, who are prepared to let them, their kids graze, break bones, hurt themselves. Um, yeah, you can educate your kids, but you can't cotton wool them because otherwise they're going to end up stupid. And so, uh, you know, that's where it starts, I think, is, is, is the children, you know, learning habits right from the adult. Yeah. I I think that's good. So, um, I want to know a little bit about your speaking and stuff. And I'm assuming that uh, when you go speak with a group, this is what you talk about. Yes, I, I'm a conference speaker. They typically want me to talk as a motivational conference speaker. A lot of yeah. others, you know, the Robin Ben and Cassis, those sorts of people, are, and you know, um, Ian Adams and those guys are very um, motivational, inspiring speakers in the USA. I'm kind of that, of that genre here in New Zealand. I travel, but to, I do internationally speak. But that people want to hear, businesses want to hear, how do you overcome adversity um, mm -hmm. and, and do a comeback? You know, I've, I've, I've told you about my comeback story from yeah. catching leptospirosis and I came back to win my sport. That's, that's one level of it. And that's what people want to hear me talk about generally. But um, there's also the, the, the attitude of resilience 
for adventure, adventure racing. You know, adventure racing is, the, is, is defined by the fact that the, your outcome is unknown. It's a risky undertaking. That's a di- dictionary definition. And it takes an attitude of resilience, of agility, of being able to bounce back and see things in a different light, um, understanding there's more than one right answer. And so that's another favorite topic of mine is, is how to encourage your crew, your team, your workplace to have this attitude of openness and out, thinking outside the square and um, self-reliance and um, uh, and positivity. You know, it's the state of mind. Yeah. It's the sort of words you choose. You know, whether your glass is, it's not just how, is your glass half full or half empty, that sort of thing. It's much more than that. Yeah. Cool. So, and, uh, you know, we'll put some links, link to all your stuff in the show notes. Oh, so. Yeah. Hey, um, you know, I love... I, I don't lecture. I, I don't. My, my my speaking isn't about just bullet points. Uh, yeah. I, I tell my story by story. Well, I, I I speak at conferences with conferences with stories, with metaphor that's chosen, with certain learnings that you can drag out of it. But I don't want to tell them the obvious. So you know, we've got you've got got funny stories, we've got sad stories, those sorts of things, yeah. just to illustrate my message. Yeah, well, that'll be cool. Maybe mm. maybe uh, somebody. Somebody uh, in the U.S. and I don't know who would be that listens to this podcast could bring you over. Get oh, yeah, you close well, to me up, so I could come. I'm coming over in July for um for some meetings, so I could pick oh, yeah? up the back of that. Yep. So well, that'd be cool. Yeah. So, all right, one more question, and I'm gonna let you go. Is there one moment, a few hours, whatever, in a race that you did in the day that you wish you could go back and change? Something you did that you maybe just tweak it a little bit and it would have been better, or a dumb mistake you made. Oh, Randy, um, my memory is full of dumb mistakes in races. <laughs> but I just, yeah, I, once again, I have to just rephrase the question. I guess I'll yep. answer the question in a different way. That I, I don't regret the past. I mean, it's through our mistakes and our dumb things. Mm-hmm. That we learn the most, you know, and the dumbest things are where we learn the most. <laughs> yeah. And um, sure, as I as I mentioned earlier, I wish I'd been a slightly better team player. And I was I, looking back on it, I think I was a bit awkward. Um, you know, those sorts of things. But you know, I wouldn't be mo- I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have learned if I hadn't made those stupid mistakes. Yeah. And, and in fact, in adventure racing, um, that's what defines it: is things going wrong, making dumb mistakes, and recovering from that. And every team, every athletes makes dumb mistakes whether it's a team race or an individual race and it's the athletes who learn to recover and um, respond to those mistakes the best they're the ones that, that win you know and you know it's, it's things like tripping over or leaving your mat behind or injuring yourself you know or putting a hole in your kayak or, or getting a puncture on the bike you know it's, it's how you respond or weather changes you know are you going to stop and put some warm clothing on or um or are you going to detour over there to get a drink out of that creek that you wouldn't normally have got water from so you know those sorts of um deviations and and uh, mistakes that define the winner you know how you respond to those and um and it's a fantastic metaphor for life you know it's not just sport that yeah that, that applies yeah <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, <coughs> I have a bad throat. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> um, okay, this is the final question. Do you, because I always ask people to talk about their best six hours and their worst six hours of racing, but I'm not going to ask you that. Oh, can I just, just hey, Randy, add, could I go back 
and, and mm. add a bit more to that other previous answer? Yep. Yeah. So, but if I, you know, I see that, you know, I welcome challenges and problems and things going wrong, but if I were to, um, alter something, I, I guess it would be about having better preparation. Um, there's always, always opportunity to, to, to plan a bit better, um, and to increase your skills and, yeah. um, educate yourself. And that's always the best thing is, is, and about having an open mind. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I, I hear that. Um, okay. But here, here's my final question. Do you remember the good times or the hard times more fondly? Wow, good times are hard. This is getting really deep um, because there's, <laughs> there's a concept called locus of control. If you want to look it up on your on Google, um, the locus <laughs> of control, um, and it it it's sort of it's you know it's, it's putting people in boxes, which isn't a healthy thing to do, but it's a good measure if you like, just to, as an educational thing. Yeah. So it 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 talks about whether what your personality type is. Do you tend to see things? Do you, or do you tend to focus more on the, the good things or focus more on the bad things? Mm-hmm. And um, and we tend to find people who achieve more tend to um, – it's a generalization, but they tend to be more optimistic and happier and live longer. And um, those uh, those people who tend to forget the bad things or, or dim them, if you like, put them further away in, the, in their memories and focus more on the the good things in life, whether they're um, – you know, uh, well, we're, you know, focusing more on the good things is about making them more colourful, making them bigger pictures. You know, focusing more on the noises and what was said in those in those times. So that's a habit you can get into by, um, you know, for example, I get up in the morning and think, okay, what are three good things about today? Or I go to bed and, and you know, the last thought on my mind is, what were three good things that happened today? And that's training my mind to think more about the positive, and, and focus more on the good things. So. Um, and, and this is the, the structure of depression too, you know, is, is you yeah. tend to focus on the bad things. And I've, I've been through a couple of years of really bad depression, um, after that leptospirosis. And again, when I, um, had to retire from being a professional athlete, you know, you know and I realized, you know, eventually, <laughs> my slow learner, that, um, the best way out of that is to change your habits of thought and, and notice, it's basically noticing gratitude or, or having gratitude for what you do have rather than what you don't have. That's a good place to stop. Although, I got, <laughs> you got one, one more question. <laughs> no, I don't have a question. But if I get if I get to be get the pl- privilege of being at God's Zone next year in Queenstown, can uh, yeah. we get together and spend another hour chatting? Absolutely, I live in Queenstown, so um, yeah, we'll do that easily. Yep, no problem. I'd love to talk okay. to you more, Randy. Yeah, it'd be great. This has been. Um, Fast and wonderful. Thank you. No worries. Hey, Godzone, um, it's probably going to be a, uh, you know one of its, one of their best races. I mean, last year was, which is this year, sorry, the, 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 the yeah. most recent race was, I think, their best yet in terms of um, the course design, the publicity, um, growth of the sport, the number of people mm-hmm. watching online. It was fantastic. They've, they've got their formula right. And um, I think, so. I think they're uh, charged now to make it even better next year now that it's in Queenstown, their hometown. They'll be able to yeah. organize even better uh, resources behind the race. So I think if you're going to come to the God Zone this, this next year, 2017, will be the one to come to. Well, I certainly had a great time at the last one this year. So, Oh, were you there, well, Randy? Yeah, I was there. Yep. I, uh, Did I meet you? I didn't see you. Did I? No. Well, My memory is shocking. 
I was busy. <laughs> we were all busy, right? Yeah, yeah. I was actually out on my yacht, um, out of the, you know, out of touch for most of it. So, uh, yeah, oh, well, look, look forward to seeing you this year then. Great. Yeah, we'll do that. One. Okay. Thank you for your time. Pleasure, Randy. Well done. Keep you keep the good work up, making a difference. Good on you. All right. Cheers. Thanks. See ya. Bye. Hello, everyone. This is your Action News reporter. With all the news that is news across the nation, on the scene, at the supermarket, seems to have been some disturbance here. Pardon me, sir. Did you see what happened? Yeah, I did. How's you standing over there by the tomatoes? Just standing over there like this. And here he come, running through the pole beans, through the fruit and veggies, naked as a jaybird. Ethel's over in the jams and jellies, preserves and pickles. I hollered over. I said, Don't look, Ethel! She dropped the whole jar of kumquats. Fell back into the sweet midget, sir. It's, it's too late. She had done been incensed. Now, normally, ladies and gentlemen, we just leap right on into that haunting, familiar refrain. <clears throat> but we've had some critics lately to say that this song doesn't have any class. In response to these unfounded, dastardly accusations, we have rehearsed what we think is a little more cultured arrangement. And we'd like to show you all just a little bit of it right here. Let's tune it up, boys. Get it in tune. Intonation is paramount. Hello 
once again, everyone, your action news reporter on the scene at the gas station. Seems to have been some disturbance here. Pardon me, sir. Did you see what happened? Yeah, the end. I just sit here trying to get a little air in that tar there. And he disappeared out of the traffic over to Gumster Reed. Get around the grease rack and have nothing on but a smile. Ethel's in there getting her a cold drink. I hollered in there. I said, Don't look at them! Too late, she done been mooned. I mean, she mooned. Old boy took her picture with his brownie. I don't even think it had any film in it, I tell you that. Flash is working, though. He flashed her right there, brother. This TP is terrible, powerful. Boy, I say, call him the street. Like a turn the She's always making news. Wearing jets and tennis shoes. Guess you can call him unique. Once again, everybody, Raxon News reporter on the scene in the booth at the gym, covering the disturbance of the basketball playoff. Pardon me, sir. Did you see what happened? Yeah, they did. Half time, I was just going down there to get Ethel a snow cone. Here he come, right out of that cheap seat. Right down the middle of the court there. Didn't have nothing on but his high top Reeboks. He was a dribbling. Played a jump shot, got out through the concession. I hollered up this and I said, Don't look at those! Too late, she done got a free shot. <laughs> Grandstander right there in front of the home team. What it was was a personal foul, is what it was. It's terrible. It's awful. But it's a call in the street. Ooh, here he comes again. Who's that with us? Ethel. Is that you, Ethel? Well, where do you think you're going? You get them clothes on! Ethel, you brazen hussy! Say it as a so, Ethel. The wedding is out! Kind of cute, though, Ethel, you know that. Okay, what are you doing Saturday night, Ethel? Ethel!